Warning, this episode contains some details of gun violence. Listener discretion is advised. This tale could have easily been told as a love story. Boy meets girl, they fall in love, they get married, they have children, and they grow old together looking back fondly upon the life they've lived, right? Ideally, this would be the norm for those of us who are seeking to have a life partner by our side all the way till the end. Of course, marriage isn't for everybody, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with not choosing that for yourself. I'm pretty sure that any single ladies and gentlemen out there have some married friends that envy some aspect of the single life. Unfortunately, Many marriages don't always make it to the till death do we part section of the wedding vows. If you do, then people you know, and even some people you don't know, might be rather curious and are likely to ask you for your secrets to a long marriage. We all want to know, at least I know I do. Because in the United States, we've all heard that approximately half of all marriages end in divorce and this number is relatively average across most developed countries in the world. But when you break that average down a little bit more to the number of marriages per person, you might be surprised. 41% of all first marriages end in divorce, 60% of second marriages, and 73% of third. I guess whoever said the third time's a charm wasn't really talking about marriage. In the United States, there's a divorce every 36 seconds, and that amounts to about 2,400 divorces a day. By state averages, Oklahoma has the highest rate of divorce, followed by Arkansas in second and Alaska in third. Divorce is a difficult life event for anyone to have to contend with. It can often be painful and contentious, even more so if children are caught in the crosshairs. Some divorces can be amicable. I don't really know anyone who's experienced this, but I've heard it can be a thing. Today's tale is about a marriage gone wrong. By the time we get through to the end of the story, you are going to wish that this marriage had ended up as another divorce statistic. This is a story about a marriage that ended in a drug-fueled act of violence committed by a deeply pained and tormented soul that would leave their friends, family, and entertainment world stunned. I'd like to welcome you back and thank you for listening to our third episode here of California Dreaming. I would like to thank everyone who's taken the time to leave a review and feedback on Facebook and iTunes. Not just the five-star ones, which I do really appreciate, but all of them are important to me as long as you're nice and constructive about it. I'll do some shout-outs at the end of this episode. I'm also going to play a short message from a friend and fellow podcast host of mine who has been so fun, enthusiastic, and supportive of my show from the very beginning. Also, don't forget, you can still receive show stickers if you've left your review, any number of stars on Facebook or iTunes. So email me at californiapod at yahoo.com for more details. And now, 
Episode 3 of California Dreaming, The Tale of Dead from L.A. I'm fairly certain most of you have watched Saturday Night Live at some point in the last 42 years, or you've watched some clips online, or at least have heard of the show in some capacity. You don't have to be familiar with it to listen to this episode, but just in case you haven't heard of it, I'll give you a brief background in history. Saturday Night Live, SNL for short from this point forward, is an American sketch comedy show that is filmed live from New York. Over the 829 episodes that have aired since 1975, there have been several legendary actresses and actors that have graced stage eight at 30 Rockefeller Plaza, including such names as Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, John Belushi, Tina Fey, Will Ferrell, Jan Hooks, Dana Carvey, Kristen Wiig. I could probably go on forever about the great talents whose careers began with SNL. It's basically legendary. You may have also heard of a phenomenon known as the SNL curse. I'm not really one to buy into these so-called curses, but it's made its rounds on the internet, so it might be worth a mention. Supposedly, because nine former cast members have died before the age of 60, this is apparently not just a coincidence, but a curse. I hesitate to refer to it as that, since it doesn't seem that unusual to me for nine people connected to one particular occupation to die over the course of 42 years, and about half of them were deaths due to long-term illness. Of course, there were a couple of drug overdoses, and there was one suicide. However, there is one death of an iconic former SNL cast member that stands out from the others. It stands alone as the only one of the theoretically cursed SNL deaths to have the word murdered next to his name. What's more, murdered is followed by the words, his wife. You may have guessed his name by now, but if you haven't, he is legendary Canadian-American actor, voice actor, comedian, screenwriter, and graphic artist, Phil Hartman. Born September 24, 1948, in Brantford, Ontario, Canada, Philip Edward Hartman was the fourth of eight children born to Rupert and Doris Hartman. His family moved to the United States in 1958, first to Connecticut, and then later on they relocated to California. He attended Westchester High School, where he gained a reputation for being the class clown. He went on to study at Santa Monica City College, but decided to drop out in 1969 and become a roadie with a rock band. In 1972, he went back to school and studied graphic arts at California State University at Northridge. He earned his degree and started up his own graphic arts business, designing album covers and logos for rock bands. Despite moderate success with his graphic designs, Phil felt as though he needed to be doing much more than what he was doing at this time. He wanted something that would infuse his creativity as well as his intrinsically funny social and outgoing personality. Being on TV seemed to be his destiny, and he knew it early on. Phil made his very first appearance on TV in the late 70s on a show called The Dating Game. In case you haven't heard of that show either, it was an American dating competition show of sorts. Typically a bachelorette, 
would ask three bachelor's questions, but she couldn't see who they were or what they looked like. At the end of the questioning round, she would pick one of the bachelors to go on a date that the show would pay for. Occasionally, the roles would be reversed with the man questioning three ladies. Phil wasn't the only celebrity to have appeared on the dating game. Others included Farrah Fawcett, Suzanne Summers, Lindsay Wagner, Leif Garrett, Tom Selleck, Lee Majors, members of the Carpenters, Andy Kaufman, Steve Martin, Burt Reynolds, John Ritter, Arnold Schwarzenegger, a young Michael Jackson, Ron Howard, Maureen McCormick, Barry Williams, and Sally Field. Phil actually won, but his date stood him up. Can you imagine? A little fun fact before we move on, California serial killer Rodney Alcala also appeared on the dating game, and it was in the midst of his killing spree at the time. We might revisit him in a later episode. In 1975, Phil joined a comedy group called The Groundlings. It was here he is credited with helping actor Paul Rubens develop the character he is famously known for, Pee Wee Herman. Phil co-wrote the screenplay for the movie Pee Wee's Big Adventure and made a recurring appearance as Captain Carl on the TV adaptation Pee Wee's Playhouse. Phil finally found some measure of fame when he joined the cast of SNL in 1986. He became known for his on-point impersonations, particularly of President Bill Clinton, and he would go on to finish out eight seasons of SNL. Cast and crew would describe him as being the glue of the show during his tenure there, as he had an ability to hold the show together, as well as be there for all the cast members whenever they needed any kind of help. Phil was the one they could count on to be there for them. In 1989, Phil won a Primetime Emmy Award for his work on SNL. His time on the variety show ended in 1994, and the following year, he went on to star on the NBC sitcom News Radio. In addition, Phil gave his voice to an assortment of characters on The Simpsons from season two through season 10. If you're a Simpsons fan, then you may remember him from such characters as lawyer extraordinaire Lionel Hutz, and washed-up movie star, Troy McClure. Phil's personal life seemed to ebb and flow through three marriages over a 17-year period. His first marriage to Gretchen Lewis lasted from 1970 to approximately some time prior to 1982. I wasn't able to find an exact date of the dissolution of marriage. In 1982, Phil married real estate agent Lisa Strain, but the two were divorced three years later. Lisa would go on to tell People magazine that, off-screen, Phil was extremely reclusive. As she would describe it, he would seemingly disappear emotionally, as if his body was in the room, but his mind would be in another world. She found it to be extremely frustrating, and when they would argue about it, Phil would tell her that this is who he was, and this is the way it was going to be. His withdrawn disposition would also be problematic for his relationship with his third and final wife, Bryn. Bryn Hartman was born Vicki Jo Amdahl in Thief River Falls, Minnesota to father Donald Jean and mother Constance Fay. She was one of four children. Bryn would eventually make her way to California 
and change her name so she could pursue her dream of an acting and modeling career. Phil met Bryn on a blind date in 1985. He found himself at somewhat of a low point in his personal and professional life. His second marriage ended so abruptly that it was a shock to him, and his career wasn't exactly taking off as he had hoped. So at the time he met Bryn, he was very much taken with the stunningly beautiful, statuesque blonde. She most certainly bolstered Phil's self-esteem at a time when he was very vulnerable in life. However, even from the beginnings of their relationship, friends would say things did not go smoothly. There were intense fights followed by reconciliations. It was an ongoing cycle for the duration of their marriage. Perhaps what Phil didn't know or hadn't realized what many people were in the dark about was this period of time, that time when Bryn and Phil met and began their romance. Bryn was right smack in the middle of a period of sobriety, a place that she would have an on-again, off-again relationship for nearly her entire adult life. Friends of Phil, to put it mildly, were not enthusiastic about his new love interest. It seems as though they sensed, based on the constant fighting and reconciling, the union would be racked with difficulties. They could have never known how this would turn out to be quite the prophetic sentiment. When Phil told his friend, actress Cassandra Peterson, that he was planning on proposing to Bryn, she did not hesitate to voice her discontent with his decision. He became very angry and demanded that she leave his office immediately. The friends didn't speak for years to come. Phil was very much beloved by anybody who knew him, so in turn, this volatile relationship with Bryn was quite troubling to many of them early on. Phil, though, was smitten with her, and the two would be married in November of 1987. Together, they had two children, Sean and Birgen Hartman. Needless to say, and as many predicted, the union between Phil and Bryn was filled with difficulties. The year following their marriage, Phil finally hit the big time when he became a part of the SNL cast. This would be the show to make Phil a household name. Meanwhile, Bryn was beginning to feel as though her husband was on the fast track to becoming a superstar while she floundered on the sidelines, unable to find success in acting or modeling in her own right. She was immensely insecure about her place in this world. She felt afraid and intimidated by Phil's growing success and popularity. His tendency to withdraw emotionally in private, a stark contrast to his outgoing public persona, would make the situation worse whenever Bryn flew into one of her fits of anger and resentment towards Phil's status as a celebrity. In a nutshell, the two were emotional polar opposites. Bryn was volatile and insecure, and Phil, despite being outwardly amiable, was sullen and introverted in private. As Phil once put it to a friend, I go into my cave and she throws grenades to get me out. Earlier, I had mentioned the idea of an amicable divorce. I also mentioned that I don't know anyone who's experienced this phenomenon, but it must be a thing somewhere. Well, 
It just so happens that with the divorce between Phil and his second wife, Lisa Strain, this was actually a thing. The two remained close friends for years after their short three-year marriage ended. So when Phil and Bryn welcomed their first child, Sean Edward, in 1988, Lisa sent the couple a greeting card congratulating the new parents. In a harsh illustration as to the levels of anger and insecurities with which Bryn was so consumed, she, in return, sent a four-page letter back to Lisa that was utterly venomous, hate-filled, and profanity-laden. So filled with vitriol, Lisa was completely taken aback by its contents. In it, Bryn threatened Lisa's life and gave her a severe warning that if she were to ever try to make contact with Phil again, that she would rip her eyes out. Lisa was so fearful of the things that were said to her in that letter that she called Phil to tell him about it. She was certain that he needed to know the things that were written in that letter and that there was a concern not for only her safety, but for Phil's as well. As it turns out, to Lisa's astonishment, Phil was in the know about the letter all along. Even more disturbing, he had been made privy to a rough draft of the letter that was apparently even worse than the one she actually received. He tried to explain that the whole ordeal was partly his fault because in an argument they were having over the congratulatory card from Lisa, Bryn asked Phil if Lisa was his soulmate, and he blurted out yes. Lisa would not speak to Phil for more than two years after receiving this letter from Bryn. Neither Phil nor Bryn ever really wanted a divorce. They both wanted to try to make this marriage work somehow. Friends and associates of Phil's would relate that few people truly knew the real Phil. But anyone who knew him would say that despite the fact when he was around friends or co-workers, he would never seem to come out of his funny, light-hearted characters he portrayed, that he always gave the unwavering impression that he was first and foremost a family man who cared so deeply for his children. To that, they say, there is no doubt. He wanted to raise them with Bryn. He wanted to make this work. But as his marriage to Bryn was turning into an endless cycle of vicious fights and makeups and more fights and more makeups, Phil still wanted to make this work. He loved his family. He loved Bryn so much so that he was even willing to consider giving up everything he had worked his entire life for in an effort to save his marriage. He contemplated early retirement. He figured if they could just put this part of his life in the past, that it might make way for them to be able to pick up the pieces of their collapsing marriage and try to keep their family together. Phil also tried as much as he could to help Bryn break into acting to get her roles so she might find some measure of success that was all her own, to feel like she was more than just Phil Hartman's wife, and to make a name for herself. But it didn't work, because being Mrs. Phil Hartman, as you will find, is not really the fundamental reason why things were so tempestuous between the couple. What's just about the worst thing you can throw into an unstable mixture to make it even more explosive. A long-standing, ongoing, on-again, off-again addiction problem. Bryn's addiction problem, to be more specific. 
throw in some mental health challenges, and you can be certain this marriage is gaining full speed to destruction. A recovering alcoholic and cocaine user, after almost 10 uninterrupted years of sobriety, Bryn had taken up drinking again. She had admitted to friends that she had fallen off the wagon a couple of times and constantly struggled with not wanting to be an addict. In the months leading up to the events of that May, Bryn had boomeranged in and out of rehab facilities. Earlier in the year, she had checked into a clinic in Arizona, but only stayed for a couple of days before checking herself out. Bryn, unfortunately, was not going to be able to find the sobriety that was now so frustratingly eluding her. She could feel herself and her life, at least that's how she perceived it, spinning completely out of control, and Bryn was losing her grip on things. All of these dynamics, Bryn's volatility, her anger, her insecurities, her mental instability, her drug and alcohol addiction, her fragile emotional state, her fractured state of mind, everything that was eating away at her, inside and out, was going to culminate into one murderous act of violence on the evening of May 27, 1998. And we, the rest of the world, would wake up to the devastating news. In the late hours of the 27th, into the early hours of the 28th, Bryn shot and killed Phil Hartman, her husband of 11 years, as he lay sleeping in their bed. He was 49 years old. In the days leading up to Phil's murder, Bryn began drinking heavily and using cocaine again. She had also been taking antidepressants at the time, which, mixed with alcohol and drugs, can trigger fits of violence and uncontrollable outbursts. As a matter of fact, Bryn's behavior had become so erratic and unpredictable that their housekeeper quit only 10 days before Phil's murder. The night prior to the shooting, Bryn had been drinking at an Italian restaurant a few blocks from their home with a friend until about 10 p.m. She returned home sometime between 2 and 3 in the morning intoxicated and high on cocaine. Bryn's whereabouts between the time she parted ways with her friends at the Italian restaurant to the time she arrived home is anybody's guess. Something had set Bryn off that day, which led to this evening of drinking and drugging. However, it can only be speculated as to her state of mind that night. According to some accounts, Bryn had supposedly received or found a letter that day, written by Phil, which implied he wanted to end their 11-year marriage. Others have stated that they were under the impression the couple were seeking marriage counseling and that the two were actively working towards mending their troubled relationship and that things were moving in a positive direction. Regardless of the speculations of Phil and Bryn's friends and associates, Bryn was obviously not having a good day. According to what police could surmise from the evidence at the crime scene, the following account is most likely what happened that night. As Phil lay sleeping in his bed, he was on his side with one knee bent and one arm extended outward across the bed. He was wearing a purple t-shirt and boxers with cartoon dachshunds all over them. Bryn came into the bedroom 
where she proceeded to quietly go into the closet. It is in there that the couple kept their firearms and ammunition in a lockbox on a closet shelf. She took from the lockbox a Smith & Wesson 38 millimeter revolver. She went over to where her husband was sound asleep and from point blank range, Bryn took aim and fired the first and most certainly instantaneously fatal shot right into Phil's forehead. The bullet entered just above the bridge of his nose, penetrating his skull, going into his brain where it came to rest. A second and third shot were to follow. However, the order of the shots could not be determined. One entered the right side of Phil's neck, somewhat lateral to his chin, and the other went through and through Phil's forearm, re-entering his body on the right side of his chest. Both of these shots were fired from approximately 18 inches away. For Phil, death came quickly. He probably never knew what happened. We like to hope he didn't anyway. We certainly hope he didn't see who did this. And we'd also like to hope that he didn't suffer. A little while later, close to 3.30 in the morning, after fatally shooting her husband, likely still intoxicated and high, Bryn called a good friend of hers, Ron Douglas. He resided in nearby Studio City. She tells Mr. Douglas that her husband isn't home and that when she got there, he had left her a note saying that he was going to be out for the night, but he would be back. She tells him that she doesn't want to be there alone and she wants to come over to his house. He advises her that he doesn't think it's a good idea because it's late and her children really shouldn't be left home alone. He suggests that she drink a glass of milk along with some aspirin and try to get some sleep. Bryn doesn't take Mr. Douglas's advice. About 20 minutes later, Mr. Douglas hears his doorbell being rung over and over again, mixed in with some incessant banging on the front door. He comes downstairs and looks out the window where he sees Bryn standing there. She's wearing pajamas and socks, no shoes, tightly clutching her purse. Mr. Douglas, pretty aggravated at this point, opens the door and somewhat angrily asks her what's going on. As she walked past him, noticing that her friend is annoyed, she asked him not to yell at her. The smell of alcohol hung in the air as she stumbled into his house. In an attempt to sit down, Bryn drunkenly misses and slides off the sofa onto the ground. Panicked and crying, she tells Mr. Douglas that she's killed Phil Obviously, he's not believing what the extremely intoxicated Bryn is hysterically rambling on about. He figures the two just had another big fight, which of course is the norm for Phil and Bryn. Still sitting on the floor, she begins to look as though she's about to pass out. Mr. Douglas is still put off by the fact that she's been drinking heavily and left her children unattended. She tells him that she's having pains in her stomach and she's feeling very ill and then Bren does pass out. Afraid that she might be experiencing a drug overdose, Mr. Douglas wakes her up. She immediately goes to the restroom to vomit. This would be repeated several times over these early morning hours. Doze off, wake up, vomit.
Mr. Douglas does all he can to keep Bryn awake until she is sober, still not taking the admission Bryn made to him seriously yet. Still in a fog of booze and drugs, Bryn asks Mr. Douglas to call her house. He does so several times, but nobody answers. As he's on the phone, trying the house a few more times, Bryn begins to fumble through her purse. Suddenly, out falls the Smith & Wesson 38 onto the floor. He asks her what she's doing with a gun. Bryn picked it up off the ground, but Mr. Douglas demanded that she hand it over to him, which she did. He opens the cylinder of the revolver and sees that all six chambers are loaded. So he figures that since all the bullets are accounted for, nobody's been shot. He takes the gun and puts it away in a kitchen drawer. Bryn continues to insist that she shot Phil, but Mr. Douglas thinks Bryn is still intoxicated and seriously out of touch with reality. The time is approaching 6 a.m., and Phil and Bryn's children are likely to awaken soon. Mr. Douglas feels as though Bryn is sober enough to drive herself home, but she wants him to follow her there. As they are getting ready to take their separate cars back to the Hartman residence, Bryn reminds Mr. Douglas to bring the gun with him. He retrieved it from the kitchen, and just to double-check the revolver, he opens it again, but realizes immediately that he's made a mistake counting the number of bullets. There were indeed three missing bullets. How could he have missed something like that? Perhaps he was tired or didn't exactly know what to look for. Who knows? At this point, he still wasn't accepting the confession Bryn had made to him in those early morning hours that she had shot and killed her husband. That was just not going to be a possibility for him to accept at this moment. Figuring, or at least hoping, I suppose, that the three missing bullets were fired by Bryn as warning shots, he takes the gun, places it inside a plastic grocery bag, and puts it in the trunk of his car. He reluctantly follows Bryn back to her house. Mr. Douglas is doing everything he can to keep up with an erratically driving Bryn. She's speeding and running red lights the entire way. As she's driving, she calls her friend Judy. In hysterics, she tells Julie that she thinks that she's killed Phil. Judy is asking Bryn where she is, demanding that she read off some street signs so that she can try to locate her and drive to her location. Bryn tries to tell her what street she's at, but starts yelling that she doesn't know, she doesn't know, that her life is over, and that she's about to get home. Judy immediately hangs up and quickly makes her way towards the Hartman residence. Bryn soon arrives home and parks her car in the garage while Mr. Douglas parks on the street. He grabs the gun from his trunk and follows Bryn inside. Inside the house, he quietly follows her down the hall all the way to the master bedroom. Peeking into the room, he sees Phil laying there so still on the bed. Shortly thereafter, he sees the bullet wound to his forehead. Bryn wasn't kidding. She wasn't lying. She wasn't misremembering. She wasn't in an inebriated fog. She was right. She did it. She really did it. She killed him. As Mr. Douglas is standing there, 
trying to wrap his head around what he's actually looking at, Bryn, filled with panic, fear, and regret, starts to make some more phone calls. She first calls some friends who live nearby and tells them what she's done. They reside only a couple blocks away, so they hurriedly make their way over to her house. In the meantime, Mr. Douglas finds himself standing in the hallway outside the bedroom where Phil lay dead. He spots a telephone nearby and picks it up and dials 911. Fire Department Emergency Operator, how may I help you? Yeah, hi. Um, there's been a shooting at 5065 in Cena Boulevard. How many people are shot? Just one. And, um, Do you know what part of the body? I think around the head and neck. I just got here. The person who shot him, is he still around? Yeah, she's his wife. The wife shot him? Are they both there? Yeah. Is she hurt at all? I'm not sure. I'm trying to calm her down, okay? Hello, sir? Yeah? Did, um, was this on purpose or was this an accident or what, sir? Do you know what happened? I have no idea. She was drunk. She said she killed her husband. I didn't see her. Okay. Uh, are they both there now? All right, where's the weapon now? It's in my hand because she brought it to my house. What is your name, sir? My name's Ron. Ron okay, sir. We're going to get officers on the way. Okay. While Mr. Douglas is on the phone with 911, Bryn goes into the master bedroom, closes and locks the doors behind her. Mr. Douglas attempts to gain entry into the room, but is unable to. In his hand, he still has the murder weapon, still in a plastic grocery bag he wrapped it in earlier that morning. He's likely thinking, hoping that since he's still in possession of it, Bryn can do no harm to herself. Standing there, wanting to leave and have this nightmare to end, he makes his way to the front door but finds he's prevented from doing so due to a deadbolt Bryn had locked and took the key. He returns back to the hallway outside the master bedroom. He can hear Bryn crying in the room. At 6.21 a.m., Bryn starts trying to get a hold of Kathy, her sister who lives in Wisconsin. Unable to reach Kathy at home, she next tries her work number and is able to get her on the line. She tells her sister that Phil is dead. Incredulous, Kathy questions her as to what she's talking about and what happened. Bryn is having a difficult time conveying to Kathy what has transpired. She tells her that she can't breathe, that she's sick, that she doesn't know or remember what happened, but to please tell her children that she loves them. Kathy attempts to reassure Bryn that she knows she loves her children and that her children know she loves them. She encourages Bryn to call 911, but she can't seem to get anything across to a very hysterical Bryn. She's letting out screams that sent chills down her sister's spine. Kathy is becoming increasingly concerned, not only for Bryn, 
but for her niece and nephew, Sean and Bergen. She asked Bryn if there's anyone else in the house that she could speak with. She desperately wants to make sure the children are being taken care of in the midst of this chaos. Bryn is crying, and it's incessant. As she tells Kathy she has to go, she just has to go, Bryn hangs up. Twelve minutes later, at 6.32 a.m., the police call Bryn's home phone line and ask if Ron is there. She tells them he is and to come inside. The caller asks her if there is someone there that's been shot, and she says there is. The caller asks how many people are inside the house, but she's unable to answer. She simply asks through her sobs that somebody come help her. She hangs up on the police. They call again, asking how many people are inside the house, but she again is unable to answer, crying and sobbing that she doesn't know. This time the police end the call, figuring they aren't going to get any useful information from her. Friends who had received calls from Bryn are beginning to converge on the home. One friend was attempting to get buzzed in at the gate, but Bryn couldn't seem to find the correct way to let them in and instructs them over the gate, over the gate, and hangs up the phone. The friends manage to get over enough just to open it from the other side. As they make their way up to the front door, they can hear a woman's screams from inside. It's Bryn. Mr. Douglas is still locked inside, desperately searching for a key to unlock the deadbolt. Bryn's friends outside can see him through a window. However, they aren't familiar with one another. They're asking Mr. Douglas to let them in, but he explains that he can't find the deadbolt key. They ask him to get the key from Bryn, but certain he isn't going to be able to do that. He tells them he can't, and they have to find another way to get into the house. Just in this moment, police arrive at the residence, and they quickly motion to Bryn's friends to step back away from the house. In the meantime, back inside, nine-year-old Sean is awakened by Mr. Douglas, who went to get him from his bedroom, telling him that they have to get out of the house, hoping that the child knew where to find a key. Luckily, Sean knew where his mom and dad kept the spare key to the back door, so the two got the key, unlocked the door, and exited the home. Still holding the grocery bag containing the gun, Mr. Douglas takes it and Sean outside to waiting LAPD officers. He hands the weapon over to them, and the boy is taken into police protective custody. Mr. Douglas fills the police in on as much information as he possibly can regarding the events of the past several hours, but also lets them know that the boy's six-year-old sister is still inside, presumably asleep. Officers quickly mobilize in order to make their way into the home. Entering the home through the door Mr. Douglas and Sean were able to unlock, the officers slowly pass through the kitchen and get to the hallway that leads into the bedrooms. Two officers take low positions on opposite sides of the hall, and three officers are hanging back where they have what's known as a position of advantage, a law enforcement term which is relatively self-explanatory. It's a defensive position that allows police to neutralize or have enough time to react to a preemptive strike or attack. Hearing Bryn's cries and screams coming from behind the locked double doors of the master bedroom, they immediately hone in on that room. She is on the phone with her sister, Kathy, again. 
She's pleading with her to take care of her children. Kathy is trying to figure out what Bryn is talking about. Bryn can only repeat the same mantra, take care of the children, and tell them how much she loves them. Bryn is inconsolable. Just as the words, tell mom, were being uttered by Bryn to her sister, the conversation is abruptly cut off by the arriving officers, making Bryn aware that they are outside the door. The officers call her name. She tells Kathy again that she has to go, and she hangs up for the last time. Bryn is done making phone calls. Kathy's husband, Bryn's brother-in-law, quickly calls the Los Angeles area 911, but he's told that officers have already been sent over to the residence. At this point, everyone is done making calls. Bryn settles into the bed where her husband's body lays. She places a pillow between herself and the headboard, sits upright, and leans up against it. In her hand is a gun that belonged to her for many years, a Charter Arms 38 caliber five shooter. It's a gun she's practiced firing at shooting ranges countless times. She put the barrel of the gun into her mouth and pulled the trigger. The bullet, instantly fatal, passed through her head, her brain, her skull, and came to rest in the headboard of the bed. Her head slumped to the right, as does her body, leaning in towards her husband's. Her hand holding the gun falls to the right as well, slightly brushed against his body, her finger remaining frozen on the trigger. It was 6.38 a.m. Bryn was 40 years old. The officers, unsure of the nature of the gunshot they heard at 6.38, proceeded to clear the other bedrooms before attempting to gain entry and remove Bryn from the bedroom. They got her six-year-old daughter, Birgen, out of the home and handed off safely to officers outside. Uncertain of the condition of Phil and Bryn at this time, the officers decided upon the utilization of a diversionary tactic in order to get them out of the room while also minimizing the risk to Bryn, Phil, or themselves. Two officers take position outside the master bedroom window while three stay in the hallway in their positions. They yell the orders that this is the Los Angeles Police Department and to come out with their hands up. This is shouted three times, but there is no response coming from the bedroom. The officers simultaneously throw a brick at the window and force entry through the locked bedroom doors, and they gain entry from both sides at the same time. It is quickly ascertained that both Phil and Bryn are both deceased. Neighbors begin to converge along the police crime scene tape already up around the home and then the media, and then soon the world awakens that Friday morning to the news, that beloved funny man, Phil Hartman, is gone. We can only speculate as to why Bryn felt that this was the answer to the hurt, anguish, uncertainty, and self-doubt that she felt throughout her marriage to Phil. Some speculate that it was Phil's wildly successful career on SNL, news radio, and The Simpsons, 
that cast an inescapable shadow over her and her dreams of a successful acting and modeling career for herself. It has also been reported that Bryn was excessively jealous of Phil. And as time wore on and his career skyrocketed, her jealousy grew exponentially, as did her controlling behavior. Bryn supposedly would start fights. She would confront people he worked with on the set. She would throw tantrums over fan mail. She would even accuse Phil of having affairs, which there was no evidence that he ever strayed outside their marriage. The couple attempted to attend marriage counseling sessions, but it did not seem to be working for the couple. Over time, Phil became more and more distant and withdrawn, and soon he was rejecting Bryn altogether. The crumbling of the Hartman marriage was most certainly aggravated by Bryn's backslide into drug and alcohol use. Phil had insisted on numerous occasions that she seek treatment in rehab facilities, but she never was really able to commit to the programs, claiming that she missed her children too much. Phil began confiding in friends, on-set co-workers, and even to his own mother about the issues he was having with Bryn. It's even been reported that on occasion, Phil would show up to work with scratches on his face or arrive looking disheveled because he'd spent the night sleeping on his boat just to be away from Bryn. People could see that Phil was struggling terribly with his marriage. He loved his wife, and he kept trying to seek help for her, asking friends for advice on how to stay, not to leave. Some are blaming Zoloft, an antidepressant Bryn had been prescribed in order to help her deal and cope with her ever-changing moods. The drug only aggravated her more, as according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, you are not supposed to mix the drug with alcohol. Alcohol and Zoloft are both drugs. Taking more than one drug at a time can increase your risk of negative interactions. In this case, alcohol can make the side effects of Zoloft worse, which include dizziness, depression, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, headaches, and nausea. Add this to an already unstable and increasingly unhinged personality such as Bryn, only tragedy could ensue. Being Mrs. Phil Hartman was more than she could handle. Bryn's role in Phil's world could easily be summed up in a three-second clip of the SNL opening credits montage that included a shot of Phil sitting in a booth at a diner. There is a blonde sitting next to him. In the short clip, when Phil's name is announced, he looks directly into the camera. You can see only the back of the blonde woman's head and no part of her face. If you look closely, you can see the woman's earrings swaying back and forth in the clip. Her earring is swinging because she kept trying to turn around to look at the camera and the director kept having to tell her to stop turning her head. I find this to be a chilling view into the psyche of the woman who felt she was always just going to be Mrs. Phil Hartman, that blonde with the earring, that faceless blonde looking away from the camera. If you have a chance to look it up on YouTube, it's kind of hard to find, but I managed to get a screenshot of the moment
I will post it on social media for you. Most tragic of this whole tale, Sean and Birgen, essentially orphaned at the ages of nine and six respectively. We know and heard that Bryn's final moments were consumed with thoughts of her children. I mean, how could it not be? I have very easily caught myself sitting here thinking, how could she? Were they not enough to find a way to stop this mess from ever happening? It's maddening when I think about it for too long. I keep thinking, this is so selfish. How could she? Why? Stop. Just you want to reach back and grab that gun away from her before she had the chance to end Phil's life and then her own. Your kids, just think of your kids. They need you, but it wasn't enough. Even contemplating her final phone calls, I catch myself thinking of it as another selfish move to somehow make sure someone else was going to pick up where she leaves off. I have to stop myself, though. I am in no place to judge anyone else unless I've walked a mile in their shoes. I don't know if I can even begin to imagine what those inner demons must have sounded like in Bryn's head that night. Sean and Birgen were raised by Bryn's sister Kathy, the one she asked to take care of her children in the last phone call she ever made. They were raised under different names, so their privacy has been feverently protected. However, Bergen did make an appearance on the SNL 40th anniversary special to honor her late father. No matter the reasons, there is no true way of coming to terms with the untimely death of an adored star, especially the life of one that ended so tragically. The world was not ready for Phil to leave it. Reaction to his death was widespread from all the people who worked with him and adored him over his spectacular career. He was remembered as being blessed with a tremendous gift for creating characters that made people laugh. Everyone who had the pleasure of working with him knew he was a man of tremendous warmth, a true professional, a loyal friend. Steve Martin describes him as deeply funny and very happy. Matt Groening called Phil a master. One of those guys who was a dream to work with. Nobody did it like Phil. A decidedly regular guy, beloved by anyone who got to work with him. The accolades would continue posthumously for years. Phil was named Entertainment Weekly's 87th greatest TV icon of all time. Maxim named Phil in the top SNL performers of all time. Rolling Stone also ranked Phil as one of the top 10 greatest SNL cast members throughout the show's 42-year history. In 2012, Phil received a star on the Canadian Walk of Fame, and he was also awarded the Cineplex Legends Award. In 2014, Phil also received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The Canadian Comedy Awards has also created the Phil Hartman Award that is given out annually to an individual who helps to better the Canadian comedy community. Taken from the world much too soon, 
under such tragic circumstances. Phil's legacy continues to live on through all the laughter and joy he brought with him to this world. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of California Dreaming. I will be posting pictures related to the story on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram after the show. Don't forget to join the California Dreaming discussion page on Facebook if you already haven't. You can follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. I'll be getting to work on the website soon, so I'll keep you updated on that. You can also email me if you have any questions or case suggestions. I'm also still giving out show stickers for iTunes and Facebook reviews, so keep those coming. I would also like to take this opportunity to give some shout-outs to those who took the time to leave reviews on iTunes. Thank you to Bookshelves91, Karen Rar, Kellyanne, Jug Daddy, Great for Babies, One Plunk, KS Loves Wine, Austin Anna, Nullity, Sam Simpson, Mo Lunger, JK1876, Kit Kats 47, Hollywood Starlet, and Lacey U28. And on Facebook, Nia, Abigail, and Owen. Thank you all for logging in and taking the time to leave all those dreamy reviews. I'd also like to take the time to ask you to listen to a short promo about a podcast that's just like mine, but much colder. Please take a listen to my friend Ariel Jane tell you about her show, Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Do you like hearing stories about murderous drifters? What about deadly strippers? Okay. What about entire towns being hunted down by a madman with a gun? If any of that sounds interesting, you should check out Murder Under the Midnight Sun, true crime stories from Alaska and beyond, available on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you again for joining me on this detour into the dark side of the Golden State. Until next time, sweet dreams.